Hi, this is Dave Summers, and welcome to AMA Edgewise. Mark Murphy is a New York Times bestselling author of such previous books as 100 Percenters and Hiring for Attitude. His firm, Leadership IQ, is a top-rated provider of research and leadership training, and he's provided guidance to more than 100,000 leaders from virtually every industry and half of the Fortune 500. Mark has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Fortune, Forbes, Businessweek, Washington Post, CBS Sunday Morning, ABC's 2020, NPR, and Fox. And we're lucky enough to have him live and not over the phone in our New York studios. Mark Murphy, welcome to AMA Edgewise. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Truth at Work, your new book, Truth at Work, The Science of Delivering Tough Messages. Okay, I'll bite. You you have the word science, so I'm going to test you here a little bit. You have the word science in the subtitle of your book. Now, you're obviously committed to a certain level of intellectual rigor in your research. Can you talk a little bit about what went into the research for this book, and were there any surprises? So this was about a a year-long project, and part of it was research that we had been doing at my firm. And so, for example, we found that kind of initial finding, we asked managers, how many of you have avoided giving an employee tough feedback? And we found nine out of ten managers said, yeah, I've, I've actually avoided giving people tough feedback. So we said, well, okay, why? Why did you avoid this? You know that's kind of part of your job as a manager. And they said, listen, we're pretty worried about how the employee is going to react. I don't want to spend the next month getting the silent treatment, the pouting, the drama, all of that that goes along with it. And when we first did that study, that was kind of the thing that led me down the path of saying, all right, well, why do people react so badly to getting tough feedback? So once we did that, I had to start looking around for what are all of the psychological impediments that stop people from getting tough feedback. And we uncovered things like the Dunning-Kruger effect, for example. You know, people are, they think they're fantastic. And anytime they hear feedback to the contrary, they go, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not anything less than perfect. How could you tell me I'm anything less than perfect? They're incapable of seeing their flaws. Things like cognitive dissonance, where people will hold on to ridiculous beliefs for decades simply because their brain does not handle information that is dissonant with their self-perception. If they think that they're really good at thing A, or they're a really loyal person, or they're a super nice person, a generous person, but then they get some evidence that says, no, you're actually not as generous as you thought you were, that kind of shuts them down mentally. So it took about a year of pulling all of this information together. And then, of course, that begs the question, well, great, now that we know what's kind of going wrong with the human brain, what do we actually do about it? Because it wouldn't be that good a book if it was just, here's all the reasons why people don't like feedback. We had to take it to the next level and say, all right, well, what could we actually do about it that might give us a shot of getting people to actually hear some difficult messages? So that that's really how the project came about. So fake news can, ex- <laughs> can exist at not only the international media or political level, local, organizational, even interpersonal fake news is a, is, is a thing, right? Absolutely. And, you know, when we first, when we started exploring the fake news issue, fake news, alternative facts, and all of that, 
the initial thinking was, okay, well, this is just a political phenomenon. It's, yeah, it's, you know, great, we'll talk about it on the nightly news, presidential elections and whatnot. But when people go to work, they kind of turn their normal brains on, and now they're perfectly fine. Right, they're adults. Right? They're adults. <laughs> they, they grow up, they get paid, they do their job. We found that that's actually not entirely true. <laughs> that, in fact, the whole fake news phenomenon has started to permeate the workplace. We started asking people, and one of the studies we did, we asked people, have you seen an increase in any of these behaviors? Exaggeration, for example. And, you know, more than half of people said, yeah, I've seen an increase in people exaggerating at the office. And one of the things that we discovered about this is that there's a modeling effect that takes place, that if you see something on your TV and it looks like it's working reasonably well and people are getting away with it, that actually, just like it would with kids, you know, they model their parents' behavior. Well, we model the behavior of those we see around us. And we're bringing some of those bad behaviors into the office. People are lying more. They're fudging numbers on their reports more. They're exaggerating, whether it's their accomplishments. I mean, we've known that, you know, people lie on their resumes, and that's been going on for 50 years. But it's now kind of hitting newer and bigger levels of this because it doesn't seem like there's many consequences for this. Well, okay, you lie, you get caught in a report, you sort of fudged your way through that big presentation. Well, what's the what's the downside? So this has started to change the tenor of the organizations because people are bringing these bad behaviors in. But there's one other phenomenon, too, and that is social media has essentially trained us in the worst possible way how to deliver and react to difficult news. So, for example, social media, Twitter, Facebook, whatever – they want us to respond emotionally and immediately. That's the sort of how their business models work. When there's, you know, somebody tweets something, well, you got to get respond quickly and, and automatically. And you got to do it emotionally because emotion is what gets people, you know, those sexy headlines. That's what intrigues people. Even if it's bad headlines, that's what sucks people in. The thing we found, though, is that responding emotionally and immediately are really the two worst characteristics you could possibly have if you wanted to give people bad news in a very calm, rational way. If you wanted to have a discussion at the office about somebody's behavior, exaggeration, emotion, immediate knee-jerk responses is exactly the wrong way to go about it. So we've had the fake news phenomenon, but we've also had this social media phenomenon that is essentially, you know, 10 years ago, this wasn't the same case. Facebook and Twitter weren't what they are today. I mean, we're still fighting battles over MySpace and Friendster and all that. It wasn't the same kind of ubiquitous platform. But now this has changed the way people operate. So now you go into a meeting and your boss says something critical about that report you just presented. Well, the natural reaction because of how we're taught to respond in our personal lives is to get emotional about it and respond immediately. Don't take a minute to think about it. Don't parse it into what's fact and what's opinion. No, it's just react. How dare you? Well, I think that is just Oh, beyond the pale. How, you know, this is, you're making my feelings hurt. And it's just all emotion all the time. And, and this becomes a, a very real problem. Are you making an argument for slowing things down? 
moving into a lower gear? Absolutely. You know, it's funny. I had a, a manager ask me years ago, how do I make my brain work faster in difficult conversations? Like, I, I feel like I need to think faster. And my answer was, uh, it's actually the wrong approach. The odds that you're going to get your brain to work significantly faster, A, are not that high. B, the trick for really difficult conversations is not to keep at that same speed, but to actually pause. To actually say, you know what, that's that's a lot of information to take in right now. Let me sit back. I, I want to really give this some thought here. Let's talk through this together. And instead of having what I would call reciprocated diatribe, which is where we're going to shout some stuff back and forth at each other, what I'm suggesting is what we need to do is actually pause the conversation, slow the conversation down, and literally say to people, you know what, that is a lot to take in right now. Can we just kind of talk this through sure. and let's break this into its parts so I can mentally get a handle on it. And it takes some courage, it takes some humility, but by slowing the conversation down, not only do we give ourselves a chance to process the information better, but here's the cool thing. We're actually demonstrating to the person who's, you know, shouting all this stuff at us that you need to slow this down sure. as well. That leads into a question I was going to do a little bit later, but I, I think we can piggyback on that right now. The idea of the difference between a, a conversation and a confrontation. And I guess one of those strategies would be to slow down. What else? What's the difference between conversation and confrontation? One of the, the tricks to think about the difference is, and from a personal perspective, when you're in the midst of this kind of a good heuristic, is to check yourself on whether or not you're asking questions or you're issuing statements. So conversations are typified by a good amount of questions. Usually there's somewhere in the neighborhood of a 50-50 split confrontations, it's interesting. There are very few questions in a confrontation. You know, we're having a fight with our boss or a colleague or even a spouse. It's usually you say X, I say Y. Then you say Z and I say Z plus one. And it goes on and on from there. It's statement, 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 statement. Whereas a conversation is somebody pausing and saying, okay, so what I just heard you say was X. Did I get that right? What am I missing here? Because I, I want to understand this a little better. Even when we begin a conversation, one of the cliched, terrible phrases to walk into somebody's office and say is, we need to have a conversation. Yeah. Well, A, that's a joke because it's not a conversation. We're yeah. essentially saying you need to sit there for the yeah. next 10 minutes and, while take I, it. <laughs> and take it while I tell you stuff sure. that I'm mad at. Yeah. But if we walked into the person's office and said, would you be willing to have a conversation yeah. with me about this? Sure. Just the simple act of asking a question sure. to begin this changes the dynamic radically. And so that that's one big thing is just listen for are you asking questions or are you issuing statements? Being the, uh, the parent of three adult children and now a grandfather, it's interesting. One of the ways I can always sort of get my kids to laugh is I have a couple of phrases I put out there that I think are sort of swimming in and around this stuff. And one of them is, it's a good thing I'm not a complainer. You know what I mean? <laughs> of course. And they never fails to make them laugh. And they've even actually used that on me a couple of times. And the other phrase is, somebody owes me an apology. 
you know, that kind uh-huh. of thing. Now, we joke about it. And we have a good laugh at it and stuff like that. But so much of that isn't funny to some people. They really feel that way about some of this stuff, correct? Absolutely. And in fact, it's funny you mentioned the apology thing. One of the things that we have found really disrupts conversations at work is needing an apology from the person you're mad at. The requiring, person who, requiring an apology. Exactly. This conversation isn't over <laughs> until I hear an apology. It will not proceed without that. <laughs> and it's funny because it's, it's those things that, you know, I, I have kids and I, I have a teenager and I, you know, I, I have pulled that as well. You sure. know, it's like, no, listen, I'm, I'm not done. <laughs> but the difference is, right. I kind of own you until you're 18 yes, exactly. and you go off to college right. or wherever. Economic linkage it's, here. Exactly. You are mine in the workplace. If I go in and my goal is to get an apology, one of the things I've missed is that as a manager, my goal really isn't to get people to apologize. My goal is to get people to exhibit the best possible performance. I need them to perform at the highest possible level. So if I go in and I say, well, you know, you need to apologize to me for you didn't listen to what I said to do on that report and you ignored everything I said. So, you know, listen, I I need to hear the apology. Well, in a very pragmatic level, A, for them to issue the apology to me, often involves such a significant loss of face that I may have damaged this relationship for the next couple of months. The second thing is my customers aren't paying me based on whether or not my employees apologize to me. My customers are paying me based on whether or not we deliver great work. So on a pragmatic level, if I get my employee to change their behavior and do better going forward, Frankly, who cares right. if they apologized sure. or they didn't apologize? If their work changes for the better and they never issue an apology, I've done my job. If I get the apology and their work doesn't change, I have not done my job. Mm-hmm. And so there's a very, again, sort of a, a pragmatic litmus test here. Mm-hmm. The challenge and the, and the the question, the measure of whether or not we've done a good job with these kinds of difficult conversations is simply whether or not the person's behavior has changed as a result of this conversation. Let's go from that point of behavior change into just an observation I made while going through the book. Some time ago, we interviewed uh, Stephen M. R. Covey, Stephen Covey's son, mm-hmm. about his, his book, The Speed of Trust. And not too long ago, Kim Scott, author of Radical Candor. Yep. And I, I would put, to some extent, your book, Truth at Work, in that same type of category where it's psychological, it has to do with the, the emotional and intellectual states and communication states of the people in an organization. But the bottom line is, it's just good for business, right? Absolutely. That's... You know, going back to the the study that kind of kicked this whole process off for me is when you have managers who are afraid to give feedback to people, it's a very real problem. I was uh, doing a program for a hospital, and a couple of nurse managers 
took me aside and they said, we need to share with you a story that happened here at this organization. And they said, we had this nurse on our unit and she was having difficulty running lines for the patients. So what she would do, and she was having difficulty doing it with their gloves on. So what she would do is she would tear the first finger, the index finger off of the glove so that she could get a better grip. Now, my facial expression when they told me this was similar to the one you're giving me right now, which is doesn't... What's the name of this organization and and who's the name of this person so that... I can never, ever ever go there. (laughs) Because, you know, last time I checked, I'm not an infection control expert by any means, but last time I checked, ripping the finger off a glove sort of defeats the purpose of wearing the glove. And so I said to them, well, so (laughs) what happened the first time you saw this? And they said, well... Nothing, because she's got a pretty prickly personality. It wasn't the words they used, but that's the gist. And nobody really said anything to her for about two weeks. And then finally, we reported it to our boss, the kind of vice president of nursing, and said, okay, well, what happened then? Well, they had one kind of dancing around the issue conversation where they didn't address her behavior specifically. They said, you know, we all need to practice wearing gloves and infection control and all that. And it turned out that this behavior went on for about six weeks. And, you know, what's mind blowing is that, you know, 30,000 people in America die every year from hospital acquired infections. This is the exact kind of behavior. You know, often we talk about lack of hand washing, but here we're just violating every protocol. And it's because nobody went and said to the nurse, listen, (laughs) we have to have a conversation. Here are the facts of this. Here are the expectations. And I can break this down for you. The difference between good work and bad work is bad work is you don't wear the glove. Good sure. work is you wear the glove. Sure. And because nobody ever had that conversation, you know, normally we think about tough conversations in business. We're talking about losing money. Here, we are literally talking about potentially losing lives. Oh, yeah. So, you know, tough conversations and the kinds of conversations that I'm talking about and specifically the kind of fact-based conversations where it's not you hurt my feelings, but rather this performance isn't where it needs to be. Those are the conversations. If you never went into the office and said, you know, the way you were sarcastic in that meeting hurt my feelings and made me feel less valuable. And uh, listen, we don't have to have emotional conversations, but when performance isn't where it needs to be, when customers aren't being served, when there are breakdowns in the company, when somebody's not wearing the infection control glove, Those are the conversations that will significantly damage an enterprise. And just as a wrap-up here, put this within the context of of the AMA, American Management Association, where I like to believe our noble cause is to help new managers, middle managers, aspiring leaders kind of be the warm campfire that they can go to to figure stuff out. Many of them have been great individual contributors, and now they've been given a project. They've been given a team. What's in this book for a new manager? Essentially, what's in the book is the what I would call a linear process for how to have a difficult conversation. But I'll kind of leave with this sort of essential lesson, which is that a lot of new managers in particular worry that when they go to give some tough feedback or whatever to one of their new employees, especially when they used to be colleagues of these people, 
that this is going to be an emotional conversation, hurt feelings and all the rest, and they feel like it violates their pre-existing dynamics, interpersonal dynamics with this person. So one of the big lessons in the book is to use what I call the fire model. There are facts, interpretations, reactions, and ends. Your job as the leader is to strip out all of the interpretations, reactions, and ends. And if you speak factually, listen, the comments you made in the meeting last week had the following impact on the client. That's it. That's the fact. I don't need to go into, and I think you said that because you were mad, and when you said that, it put me in an uncomfortable spot, and now I'm pretty angry as a result, and so going forward, my desired end is that I want you to rehearse with me before every meeting we have. I want to get rid of all of that stuff and simply be comfortable articulating those three comments you made in the meeting last week had the following reaction with our client. And if I speak factually, I strip out all of the emotional feeling stuff that is really hard to grapple with. If I'm a new leader and I just say to myself, I'm going to be factual. No matter what somebody says coming into my office, this organization is just horrible. This new change effort is going to ruin us. I'm just going to simply say, well, what are the facts here? Let's talk about the facts. And when a manager, especially a new manager, wraps themselves in facts, they become fairly unimpeachable and they get a whole new level of authority and power that doesn't involve supremely difficult conversations. It actually is a significantly easier conversation to have. We've been speaking to Mark Murphy, author of Truth at Work, The Science of Delivering Tough Messages. This is really cool stuff, Mark. Good luck with the book. Thank you so much. Join the American Management Association group on LinkedIn to share insights with hundreds of your management peers and to discuss practices in the areas of organizational management and leadership. To find us, simply search for the group American Management Association from your LinkedIn account. in this program or if you have any comments and questions you'd like to loop back with us on we can be reached at a phone number 212-903-8090 or by email at edgewise at amanet.org that's edgewise at amanet.org edgewise at amanet.org